Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me. I am Alistair Stevens, and this is a Point North one-shot in which I'm going to talk a little about the 2011 Woody Allen movie Midnight in Paris. I'm running just a little later than I expected to be because I just finished watching the movie again. I don't always watch the movies right before I do these one-shot lectures because oftentimes it takes time to collate one's thoughts. It takes time to figure out exactly what it is that I want to say about each of these pieces. But I wanted my response to Midnight in Paris to be more immediate than that. This is going to be, I think, a little different from the other discussions that I've given, a little different from the other discussions that we have had together. You can, of course, contribute right here in the YouTube chat. I see a few of you here already. Kim and Elizabeth is here, and Sarah is here, and Rachel is here. Rachel is skipping out on her gym class during her lunch break so that she can join us this afternoon. Rachel, I think that is absolutely the right choice and one that I completely support. Midnight in Paris is not the kind of story that I usually talk about at Point North Media. It's not the kind of story that I spend a lot of time studying because narratively, it's fairly conventional. Narratively, it's fairly straightforward. If we're going to be strictly structuralist and formal about it, then I have some thoughts on the way that the story works, the way that it unfolds. But really, Midnight in Paris is about the, the big ideas contained within the text. It's about these these deep thoughts, these profound thoughts that Alan shares with us about, well, golden age thinking, about identity, about presence, about place, and about our interaction with, intersection with those around us. It is fundamentally the story of a man finding his place in the world, or at least deciding to build, to create a place for himself in the world. And that is an enormously powerful idea. So we're going to be, I think, maybe a little more extemporaneous, maybe a little more improvisational as we move through this discussion, because Midnight in Paris is such a beguiling, bewitching, effervescent film. This idea of transport, of being transported, this idea of being drawn into other worlds and other realms speaks very powerfully to my notions of storytelling, storytelling at its most foundational, storytelling at its most primal that to take someone out of their context, to remove them from their established milieu, to, to draw them forth gently from the patterns and the, the paths of their everyday life and to allow them to see and to experience something new, something fresh, something which has spoken to them previously is vital, is, is pivotal. And within the frame of Midnight in Paris, I think that there is a, there is a, a fairy tale quality, certainly the points of transit, the, the arrival of this car at midnight on the streets of Paris is, is almost something that could be taken from a fairy tale. It, it observes the conventions of transit into fairy. If you have listened to my, my many, many sessions on fairy tales and on fairy tale structure, if you listen to my discussions of the works of J.R.R. Tolkien over in the podcast there and back again, then you'll have heard me talk about these, these threshold spaces where we cross from the mundane world into fairy. And Oftentimes in fairy tales, the rules of transit are very, very specific. You have to be at just the right place at just the right time. You have to be on the streets of Paris, on this particular corner, at the foot of these particular steps at midnight for this transit to occur. Or you have to be in the center of a circle of stones in Scotland on a particular night, once a year, twice a year, where magical things will happen, where you will transit from one world into the next. What Midnight in Paris does, though, is very carefully, very deftly, very beautifully illustrate the idea that 
we are all tourists within our own time, that we are anchored forever inexorably to the present. When Gil travels into the past, when he travels back to what he believes to be the, the golden age of Paris in the 1920s, he carries with him that notion of the present. His time, his experience is still strictly linear. So even as he moves around in time, and later in the film, of course, as he becomes more ambitious in, in the moving through time, he himself is still anchored into that linear experience. His present remains his present. And I guess I want to open this discussion by talking a little about the notion of the present, by talking a little about this idea that we are inextricably connected, that we are, we are fundamentally connected to this moment, this single moment. You and I, all here together, thinking about this movie, talking about this movie, this is the, the single moment that matters. This is the only moment in which we are truly ourselves. This is the moment that we inhabit. Because, as has been said, the past is a different country. They do things differently there. The past fades and retreats and becomes fantastical. The future lies ahead unknown and is also fantastical, is also fundamentally disconnected from the present. This is the moment that endures. This is the moment that is. Everything else is, well, everything else is story. Everything else is narrative. Everything else is perception and connotation and idealism. We separate ourselves from our personal pasts and from our shared cultural pasts by the telling of stories. We identify golden ages and retreat from them, or we identify golden ages and, and strive to move back toward them. But to do so limits our connection with the present. And there are two main approaches, I suppose, to the past. There are two ways of thinking about the past. One is to celebrate it. One is to, to idolize it. As we see here in, in Midnight in Paris, the idea of a golden age is a deceptive and tricky, uh, tricky idea. It is a seductive idea. I think we have all at one point or another in our lives had that sense that we were simply born too late, that something, something in the past speaks to us powerfully, that something in the past draws us. And perhaps if you are into popular music, for example, then, then you might think that to have been alive in the late 1960s or the early 1970s would have been wonderful. That would have been the time to live if you are into, into you know, the development of, of the conscious development of society and, and culture. Then you might look back at the, the immediate post-war years. You might think that that was the time to be alive when the world was wide and true and could be shaped, could be, could be wrought, things could be created. That might draw you, that might speak to you, or Paris in the golden age, in the 1920s, that might speak to you too. There is another perspective on the past, which I think is, is simultaneously more common and also oftentimes connected with this notion of the golden age, which is simply, well, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis both spoke on this subject with a great deal of passion, with a great deal of enthusiasm. They were always critical of the idea that the modern world is the pinnacle of human accomplishment, that we ourselves are smarter and more sophisticated and more human. We are capable of greater things than those who came before us. They were critical of that idea because it diminishes the past. It renders the past a shallower place than perhaps it was. We look back and we wonder, well, how is it that these great works of art were created? How is it that great cultures rose, great societies were built, great things were accomplished? by these simple, these 
straightforward, these less than modern, less than human people. And of course, when I'm talking about Tolkien and I'm talking about Lewis, I'm not really looking back at the early days of the 20th century or even the 19th century. They were, in this particular regard, medievalists. They were looking back at the medieval period, which has been roundly criticized in contemporary culture. When we look back at the Dark Ages, we imagine them as this benighted age of ignorance, this benighted age of fear. And that, too, they would argue, wasn't true. But both of these ideas, both, both this, this golden age philosophy and this philosophy that, that modernity exceeds all previous incarnations of humanity, these ideas both speak to this notion that our relationship with the past, our personal and cultural, our shared relationship with the past is enormously complicated, is enormously contradictory. It's a deceptive and treacherous thing to think seriously about the past and particularly define ourselves in terms of our relationship with the past. Let's uh, take a look here at the YouTube chat because I'm just doing this introductory bit and yes, I probably need to talk. Um, Kim says, I'm here because I'm avoiding cutting the grass and Alistair. Kim, I will come over and cut your lawn. That's absolutely fine. That's one of the things that I actually kind of like doing. Yes. Um, yes, and, and Kim mentions too here the, the dialogue, the, the spontaneity of the dialogue. And this is something that I had planned to talk about. This is something that I was really, really interested in, in discussing. This is one of the, like, the narrative conventional senses. This is one of the ways in which I will talk about stories is to say, okay, let's look at naturalism. Let's look at the way in which the world is presented to us. What are we to make of this fictional version of contemporary Paris versus the fictional version of Paris in the 1920s or in La Belle Epoque or, or you know, wherever we are as we move through time? Let's talk a little then about naturalism first because it is oftentimes said that Woody Allen writes realistic dialogue. And of course, that is untrue. Realistic dialogue is painful. People do not talk the way that characters in stories talk. Characters in stories talk with purpose. They talk with, with care and with planning and with attention. And when that is subverted, when our expectation is subverted, it becomes enormously engaging. It becomes immediate. It becomes intimate almost. Owen Wilson's fantastic performance as Gil throughout this entire movie is anchored in this stuttering, hesitant delivery. He speaks imperfectly. He speaks sometimes with wild imperfection, and he even delivers the thoughts that he does have, the thoughts that do crystallize to him in a, a hesitant and, and naturalistic way. One of the most interesting things that I, I track as I watch this film is the way that that is subverted when we return to the 1920s. During that first transition where he is introduced to Zelda and Scott Fitzgerald, and of course, later when he is introduced to Hemingway, who is perhaps the, the, the counter-apotheosis of, of Gill's style and, and personal sense of delivery, we see a delivery that is that much more constructed, that much more artful. And it certainly isn't the case that Fitzgerald or Hemingway are, are great writers and Gill is not, thus Gill's hesitance and, and, and his, his stuttering delivery is, is somehow indicative of a lack of talent. The movie assures us quite powerfully, arguably too powerfully, that that is not the case. He is a great writer. He is a great storyteller. His delivery is modern. His delivery is less assertive. His delivery is full of contradiction and internal conflict and, and, questions both implicit and explicit. He stumbles because the modern world stumbles because 2010, the year from which he traveled and 2011, the, the year in which the movie was released, 
the world in 2010, 2011 is complex in a way that the world in the 1920s, particularly from Gill's perspective, is not. This allows a greater sense of acuity. This allows a greater sense of purpose and of weight. So when Hemingway delivers his dialogue, we get this incredibly performative dialogue. It doesn't feel naturalistic in quite the same way. I think we buy it because it's Hemingway and because the performance is fantastic, but it isn't quite the same kind of, of narrative device. And if I'm going to talk about narrative, I'm going to, to analyze this as a piece of, of narrative fiction, then... I guess my criticism of the movie is basically anchored in our use of perspective and POV. I don't entirely understand why we, why we deviate so freely from Gill's POV when we are in 2010. I'm not sure that that adds anything of, of real significance or value. Certainly, I think nothing of, of structural value to the arc of the movie. When we cut away from Gill's POV and we see events occur to which he is not privy. We see events occur of which he is not aware or of which he is not cognizant. That simply breaks our connection to Gil. I don't think that it does anything to inform our understanding of this character. I don't think that it, it connects us more deeply with the thrust of the story. It is a way of communicating exposition, but most of that exposition is wildly unnecessary. These scenes of Inez and her parents don't really contribute anything to the overall shape of the story. They deliver, yes, a couple of key plot points but those plot points could have been communicated in another way. Certainly, Woody Allen is a skilled enough writer that he could have accomplished such things. So that is basically my, my structuralist complaint. That is my, my narrative complaint. But I also think that it does nothing to harm the magic of this story. It does nothing to harm the romance and this, this beguiling, seductive sense of, of Gill's story, of, of this enfolding of worlds, this, this well, I guess enfolding and then unfolding of worlds. So while I think those are valid criticisms, they're also not terribly, terribly important. Yes. Um, let me see here. <laughs> oh, so, so um, Kim says, yes, we are more aware of the ways uh, he can be wrong now and that makes us hesitate. Oh, more, uh, more aware of the ways that we can be wrong now. Yes, absolutely. That, that, that's exactly the point that I was trying to, to, to get to there, Kim. I think you're completely right. The modern world is full of contradictions of assertion that we have adopted or been adopted into a culture that is more hesitant, that speaks with more care because the risk of causing offense, the risk of, of being unclear, the risk of being provocative is far greater now, I think, than it has been in the past. It's always a thrill to go back and read writers from particularly the early 20th century. And, and we should clarify that too. This is certainly a modern concern. It has been a concern before in history. There have been periods when, when language has taken on this, this internal complexity, an internal dynamic complexity in order to accommodate a culture of courtesy that speaks to care and precision and a lack of flat assertion. But certainly if you look back at the early 20th century, that was not the case. The early 20th century is a time in Western culture where flat declarative assertion was much more desirable, was much more prominent in, in public discourse. And that speaks to the way that Hemingway composes and then delivers his, his dialogue. And of course, we have to be careful not to draw too much from Hemingway as a specific example, because the joke here is that Hemingway talks the way that he writes. Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not ignorant of that fact. I, I, the joke did not pass me by. But at the same time, I think that 
it, it's more than that. There is a clarity to the 1920s as they are depicted in this movie. There's a clarity to this particular milieu, to this particular community that is lacking from Gill's experience in the modern world. Arguably that clarity is one of the things which draws him to this particular time and this particular place. Yeah. Um, let me see, let me see, let me see. Oh, Lara is thanking me for lovely podcasts. I've consumed over a hundred of them by now. I'm amazed at the quality and love you obviously have a story. Well, Lara, uh, Lara's, excuse me, not Lara. That is incredibly sweet, Lara. Thank you so much. Good, good. Uh, Rachel says, there was war, no time to walk around things. I certainly think that's, I certainly think that's true. It would be fascinating to have some kind of comparative study about uh, the levels of, of permutative conflict in any given society and the modes of address and the conventions of courtesy that are evident in that society at the same time. I think there's definitely something to that idea, Rachel, that in times of adversity, courtesy tends toward the blunt. Courtesy tends toward the the specific, but not necessarily the, the more flowery, the more ornate. Generally, we would associate those things, the, the conventions of, of a more, a, a less direct, certainly, a, a more um, framed and more ornate kind of courtesy with times of, of peace and times of prosperity. So possibly, possibly. Yes, Lars is calling out here that in 1920, no, the World War had ended. That's absolutely true. But of course, we are inheriting that, uh, that sensibility. Societies do not change so swiftly. We had come through a period of, of great upset, uh, of great definition and redefinition, even in the closing years of the 19th century. Then through, of course, the First World War into the 1920s, we had inherited a generation, effectively, of strife and adversity. There was the sense that the storm cloud was looming. There was a sense that the world was a more dangerous place than it had ever been before. By the time we get to the 1920s and we're moving into an era of new optimism, we had still established uh, means of communication, particularly among artist communities, which would be more direct, be more forceful, be more assertive, more um, authoritative almost, I think. And certainly, as we see, as depicted in the movie, this is a community of artists, so we don't necessarily want to draw great inference from that. But we are seeing a greater degree of individualism, I would argue, and, and a kind of assertive, swaggering iconoclasm. We are, we are celebrating the individual, the, the triumph of the individual, in a way that I do think speaks to modern sensibilities quite powerfully. That's not terribly well explored in the movie itself because one of the things that stands out to me as I watch Midnight in Paris is the depiction completely confirmed by Gil toward the end of the movie. It doesn't quite feel to me modern. It doesn't quite feel to me like it is 2010. It feels a little anachronistic. And I think that that's completely intentional. I think that Gill sees his modern world, his contemporary world, as being somewhat out of phase, as being somewhat out of step. He himself is somewhat out of step with it. Because here we have the trip to Paris and the reliance on, on parental largesse in order to enjoy this. And we're looking at these very formalized interactions. We're looking at, well, we're meeting for lunch and then we're meeting for dinner and then we're going to, to go to Versailles. We're going to have these encapsulated, focused experiences. And the formality of that, I think, kind of exerts a negative pressure against the sense of contemporary life in 2010. Inez and Gill 
behave as though to me they were in you know, a, a Noel Coward story from the 40s or the 50s. There is a, a formality to their interaction, which I find absolutely fascinating. So there is the sense, even that when we are in 2010, we're not really in 2010. And partly, of course, that is because we're in Paris. And Paris in this movie is totemic, is symbolic, is emblematic of a host of different things. And we, we study that in a number of different ways, actually. There are a number of perspectives on Paris and, and Parisian life that do more than simply leverage Paris as a beautiful backdrop for a story that could basically take place anywhere. You know, We are not in Paris in the context of this film so that we can travel into Paris's past and address, you know, the Fitzgeralds and, and, and Hemingway and so on. We are in Paris because Paris is, well, Paris is a story itself. Arguably, all the great cities are, but Paris, I think, more than most. Paris is not just one story, but folded stories, nested stories, stories which inform each other and, and sinuously turn around each other. There is a way in which the stories of Paris are themselves Parisian lovers, that they are themselves combined and sensual. And when I'm talking about the stories of Paris, I'm talking about Paris in the springtime. I'm talking about Paris at night. I'm talking, of course, crucially about Paris in the rain. Here there are different senses, different arts. As Gil says, every street, every boulevard is an art form. And that's a line that always jumps out at me because I think he's absolutely right. It is not the case that every street and every boulevard is a piece of art. They are not all of a kind. They are not all of a sort, but they are different modes of expression. They are more unique than a series of paintings. A series of paintings, even though those paintings are wildly different, share commonalities, they share common features. That is not true of a painting and a poem and a sculpture and a movie. There are structural differences between these things. And the structural differences at the heart of the stories that we tell in Western culture about Paris speak very powerfully to Gill's movement through the city, physically moving through the city, but also moving through the city in this more, um, more thematic sense. He's moving through the city as a means of exploring himself. He is externalizing himself out into the city. And that's, that's enormously powerful. And we anchor that most powerfully in Paris in the Rain. This idea that walking in the rain in general is a virtuous thing, but that Paris in the rain is is given a greater sense of beauty, a greater sense of, of solemnity, perhaps a sense of that bittersweet beauty that comes from sadness. There is something sad about walking in the rain. There is something almost deliciously maudlin about walking in the rain. I myself am a huge fan of walking in the rain, but there can also be something, something delightful, something effervescent, something energizing about walking in the rain. I mean, Different rainstorms will have different effects on you as you walk through them. But Paris in the rain is rendered mythic. And really, I guess when I'm talking about the stories of Paris, I am in a sense talking about the myths of Paris. Paris in the springtime, Paris at midnight, Paris in the rain. And many other versions of Paris too. We open this movie with this extended sequence and it is a very extended sequence. I'm always surprised by how long it takes to get through that opening, that opening uh, series of shots, the opening credits effectively, where we get a myriad of different perspectives on Paris, on life in Paris. It's, 
Yes, it's, it's beautiful and powerful. Uh, Elizabeth says here in the YouTube chat, I was actually surprised that Alan explicitly said 2010 and didn't keep it simply the present. I completely agree. I completely agree. A timelessness for the present would have worked better for me than this very specific frame that, that doesn't quite speak so powerfully, yes. Because, of course, the present, in this sense, has the potential to be a golden age too. The present, this if you'll forgive me, temporal movable feast is, is as blurred and as general as the 20s or Le Belle Epoque, that, that we're looking at um, something that isn't fixed and focused, but something that, that spreads out and becomes fluid, becomes ragged at the, at the fringes, something that seeps into the epochs which surround it. So I completely agree. I would have, I would have held it. Yes. Good. <laughs> oh, we're high-fiving too. That's lovely. Yes, and Elizabeth also calls out here that, uh, that Gil is often told that he has sad eyes. And hmm, the notion of sad eyes as a, a proof of Gil's dissatisfaction, of his displacement, of his, of his insufficient incomplete connection with himself and the world around him is enormously eloquent and and enormously visual it, it, it wields a visual language a visual vocabulary which speaks to the idea of art and artistry that rolls throughout the entire film there's a this is a movie that that engages with other art forms in a way that movies oftentimes don't because we don't have to assert that such and such is true. In fact, those characters who assert that such and such is true, and I'm thinking mostly of Paul, the pedantic man, those characters are generally mocked, are generally ridiculed, or are presented as being thoroughly, thoroughly unpleasant. The characters who manage to inhabit with immediacy and with vitality the present, including their relationship with the art that is right in front of them, those characters are the characters that we are led to to support, led to praise, led to like even. There is a facile superficiality to Paul, of course, who is, I mean, Paul is a fantastic character. He is a fantastic creation because I cannot watch him without hating him. It is so difficult to engage even for a moment with that man and not just loathe him, which is clearly conscious and deliberate. But I think that, that, that hmm. I'm thinking now, of course, about those notions of, of artistry of art and about immediacy. And I'm thinking about the way in which those things are Mm, those things are suffused out through the present and almost completely absent from our experience in 2010. Because while Gil is accused of being a tourist, he is not touring. He is not simply cherry-picking detail. He is not accumulating knowledge. He is accumulating wisdom. There is a key distinction between those two things. He is experiencing in a primary and primal sense, the, the world that he has moved into. When we contrast that with this slight and brittle superficiality associated with Inez, associated with Paul, certainly associated with Inez's parents, we're left with the, the inescapable conclusion that 
authenticity belongs to the golden age, that authenticity belongs to this holistic sense of oneself, this, this true and full and flowering sense of oneself. We don't get that in 2010, and that's vital. One of the, the most awful and, and, and cringe-inducing and difficult-to-watch sequences in the film for me is the shopping trip with Inez's mother where we're looking at those, those chairs, the $18,000 chairs that would look so well in a Malibu beach house. Oh, I'm sorry, they're in euros, so it's more. That's terrible. The idea that cheap is cheap, which is a line that is repeated in several different forms in several different ways by Inez's mother, that is antithetical to Gill's primary experience of the golden age. And then of course, as we move into our conclusion, becomes antithetical to his experience of his contemporary world, of his real time and place. He is connected to that primacy of experience, that, that, that sensual experience, that aesthetic experience, that vibrant and urgent and oftentimes violent experience, this experience that does not respect the polite boundaries of, of society, of, of you know, community. This is experience that exists apart from you, apart from us. Yeah. Elizabeth says, I flipped off the television several times. Paul and Inez are so deplorable. Um, yeah, I find it very easy to kind of like Inez anyway, just because it's Rachel McAdams. I think she's she's just, she has an innately likable quality, which kind of works for me anyway through the film. But Michael Sheen is a, a fantastic actor and is genuinely abhorrent as Paul. I just can't with it. Yes, yes. Exactly. Rachel says, yeah, they're expensive chairs, but do you want to sit in them? No, you don't want to sit in them, which is exactly the point. Because... The purpose of a chair is to be sat in, is to be sat upon. Chairs exist and, and realize their fullest potential when they are put to the use for which they were intended. The purpose of a story is to be read. The purpose of a drink is to be consumed, to interact in this primary fashion with the, the art around us, with the world around us, is to be sated with experience is to be rewarded with with sensual and 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 aesthetic um experience with with, with dimensionality within that space you know that this idea of in fact specifically sensual dimensionality is fascinating and it comes with a cost which i guess we'll maybe talk about in, in just a few minutes but the chairs as art well the chairs can be appreciated as art but that is not their primary form. That is not their primary function. Gill can be appreciated as a screenwriter. He can be appreciated as someone who can do high-level punch-up on the scripts that, that cross his desk, and he earns a lot of money for doing that thing, but that is not his primary function. When we're talking about Gill's novel, when we're talking about the way in which he identifies himself as a writer, the entire discussion really that carries us through the first five minutes of the movie, there is a sense in which he is, is seeking authenticity. But he is seeking authenticity first in an inauthentic fashion because he is trying to identify himself by terms which are not his, by terms which do not belong to him. He is seeking to find himself in the milieu of Paris in, in 2010, ideally, fantastically, in the 1920s. 
But that isn't quite true for him. He has to grow into that. He has to learn to inhabit that. And ultimately, it isn't the 1920s that, that anchors him, that defines him, that, that gives him that sense of his core identity, that allows him to write the story which is true. And symbolically, of course, thanks to Gertrude Stein, thanks to, I guess, Hemingway is the one who calls it out, the, the essential contrast, the essential cognitive dissonance at the heart of his novel which is that the protagonist doesn't realize that his fiancée is having an affair with the pedantic man. That's a great moment, and I love the, the lightness of touch, the deafness of touch in, with which that moment is explored. That, that is enormously powerful. Yeah, good. Um, Elizabeth says her fashion sense, though, talking about Inez. Every outfit that Inez wears in the course of this entire movie is fantastic. Every single one it's kind of gross. It's, it's just kind of unnecessary that she look, not just, not just look that good, but look that specifically good. I don't have a great sense of what it is that, that drew Gil and Inez together because I don't get the sense that she has changed. And one, I th perhaps if, if I'm going to leverage another minor narrative criticism at this point, she seems so very reactive. She seems so very under the sway of her parents. And I have less of a clear sense of who Inez is when she is by herself and who she would be as a wife to Gil than I ought. I would like more of a sense of her as a fully rounded woman as opposed to someone who is passed from her father to Gil inadvertently to Paul. This is, this is a, 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 there is a reactive quality to the heart of her characterization, which I'm, I'm just simply slightly less taken with than, than I wish I were. Um, I'm just checking the time because I've just realized that I've been talking for 40 minutes and it has flown by. This is astonishing. Yes. And Elizabeth calls that too because every other woman that Gil talks to in the course of the movie is, is charmed by him. And that's okay. Cards on the table. This is a Woody Allen story. This is a Woody Allen role, in fact, were it not for the fact that Woody Allen is too old to play this role. So Owen Wilson is playing a version of Woody Allen, playing a version of Gil Prender. And that's fine as long as you don't think about the context of this movie. Because once again, we have a Woody Allen film where the nebbishy protagonist is absolutely charming and winning to every woman who crosses his path. If you allow that to interrupt your enjoyment of the movie, if you allow your understanding of Woody Allen to get in the way here, then I can completely understand why that particular element would leave you cold. But looking just at this text and forgetting all of, of Allen's other work, forgetting the, the circumstances of Allen's private life, as we should when we are analyzing stories, looking just at this text, I have no problem with Gil being enormously seductive, enormously, well, seductive is perhaps too far, but enormously charming and enormously confident and enormously authentic in his interactions with the many, many women in the course of the movie. He is relaxed and he is confident in a way that he isn't when he is around Inez, which I guess applies a pressure, or a kind of reciprocal pressure back on the depiction of that relationship. I want more from Inez. I want to understand her better so that I might... So then I might be able to understand the, the internal conflict, a, a, another means of exploring that internal dualism, because we, we tear Gil away from the present and cast him into the past. And that is a wonderful thing. And then as the movie progresses, we deliberately symbolize those two eras in these two women. And that is a really great narrative trick. That works, I think, really rather well. But because Inez is so lacking, that balance never quite 
holds up for me. I would like her to be stronger and I would like there to be a stronger connection between the two of them. Yes. Yes. And Kim says, with regard to Inez, he was drawn in by the surface and then found no depth, only surface, unlike Paris. Yes, I completely agree. Good. A masterclass on layering her clothes, no layers of personality, however, says Kim, rocking it in the YouTube chat. Yes. Good. <laughs> so let me take a look at my notes and see what I haven't discussed yet, because this, as I said, as I promised, has just been much more, uh, much more, um, extemporaneous than most of these one-shot seminars actually are. I guess I wanted to talk about the notions. We'll, we'll circle back around and talk about golden ages, I think, just to, to wrap up the discussion in a little while. But I wanted to talk a little more about the magical realist sense of Paris, the idea of Paris as a as a fantasy world, as as a fantastical realm, if you will, that for many of us, Paris is iconic in a way that our favorite fictional locations are iconic. You know, we want to go to Paris and we want to have those Parisian experiences in exactly the same way as we want to go to Stars Hollow, for example, if you're a fan of Gilmore Girls, that that there is a narrative which encircles and illuminates that space appropriately enough for Paris, of course. But once we get to Paris and we see Gil transiting between these worlds, we actually do a great deal to build a a loving and bewitching sense of magical realism. The first time the car pulls up, of course, is is surprising, but we, we kind of carry along with it. But magical realism, in part, serves its story by enfolding those fantastical elements into a much more mundane framework. So while there is magic, while there is a surprising turn, while there is a surprising twist, while there are impossible events and circumstances, they're not treated within the text as impossible or as magical or as outrageous. Gill resolves very quickly his confusion about his ability to, to move between these two different uh, periods of time. He instead embraces the mechanic as a means of exploring, well, he embraces the mechanic as a means of exploring this world that he, he wants to inhabit so desperately. The story embraces this mechanic, this reliable, traditional kind of functional mechanic as a means of exploring his core duality. That's beautifully done. It's beautifully layered. It works really nicely for me. So magical realism as a... Hmm, it's, it's one of the things that makes me a little frustrated that we don't get more or we don't get a better scene really with Dolly because I think that there is potential within that to talk really purposefully and really meaningfully about the surreal and abstract conjunction of separate and, and, and oftentimes um, mutually abrasive ideas, mutually abrasive images. There is something surreal about the, the arrival of the town car when Gil is first sitting on the steps. There is something surreal about the people within the car calling out to him in English, which is a detail which has always been suggestive for me. But that surrealism, that, that magical realism, is never really, never really tackled by the film. And I can't help but feel that the scene with Dolly is, is a waste. We go to the joke, which is... Fine. I mean, it's fine. By that point, I think a lot of viewers of Midnight in Paris are getting perhaps a little exhausted of the, oh, here, here are three more characters that we will introduce by their name. And Owen Wilson will look stunned and kind of gush all over them. And, and then we'll move on to the next set piece. That scene could have done so, so much. 
and didn't. So there's a certain disappointment there too. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Uh, Frau says so much magical realism, magical, re uh, magic realism. That's what magical realism is. Dolly, the accent is on. Uh, I think that, that autocorrect has served you poorly there. Frau Castor, I apologize for that. Um, Elizabeth says, do you think the Dolly performance was a flaw in the writing or in the performance? I can't put my finger on it. I think it's in the writing. I think it's in the writing. I think that um, this perspective on Dali is not, is on the one hand, not a terribly interesting one. The, the great struggle of surrealism, I guess, is to actually communicate depth, is to actually communicate a, a sophistication of thought because, hey, surrealism's pretty easy. Okay, surrealism is absolutely not easy. Surrealism superficially is very easy. Here is a trash can that I have put in uh, some surprising circumstance. I don't know. I'm literally just looking at a trash can out of my window right now, which is what made me think of trash can, and I didn't come up with a better surrealist image. Apparently, surrealism is not even superficially easy. But you juxtapose two things. You have fish fingers and custard. You have a fish on a bicycle. You, you, you lean into the idea of, of forceful absurdity, and then that's it. That's the entirety of the idea. There's no depth beyond that great surrealists, great abstract artists, in fact, can push past that superficiality and communicate real meaningful depth through the juxtaposition of two superficially opposed things. The writing for Dolly in this movie does not do that. It is, perhaps appropriately, as superficial as the most superficial surrealism. So it, it is thin, poor, weak writing. And I'm not sure, honestly. I'm not sure that everyone who appears in the movie, all the, um, I guess we can think of them as celebrity cameos, all of the famous historical personages who show up in the movie, I'm not sure that they're all served terribly well by the writing, particularly once we turn the halfway point and we're moving toward a more rapid expansion of, of our cast here. I think that, that the Fitzgeralds are done beautifully. Hemingway, for me, is the standout. Hemingway is about as good as that version of that character could possibly be. The performance is unparalleled. I just love it. Gertrude Stein, I think, is great. And then things start getting a little more thin. I would have loved more from Picasso, but we get effectively nothing. We get a caricature of Picasso, which again, perhaps not inappropriate in its way. I love when we go deeper with these characters. I would have loved, honestly, to have cut the number of celebrity cameos by two-thirds. Take two-thirds of them out and then use the others as a means of really exploring character and really exploring perspective. Yeah. Good. Um, let me see here. <clears throat> Luke Hopkins says, I'm just going to leave this here. I wrote a play called The Death of Woody Allen in which he divides his works like King Lear, goes mad at pointless remakes, dies, and has a debate with God. Uh, Luke, do you have a link to that? Do you have a link that you can share? Because that sounds extraordinary. Uh, I don't think that you can post links in the YouTube chat, but if you tweet it to me, I guess, I'm at Paper Bullets over on Twitter, then I'll retweet it because that sounds very, very interesting. Yes. Good. Good. Yes, Elizabeth says, with, with regard to the Dali performance, everyone else seems so sincere and unaffected. Yes, and I think that we managed to, to purposefully pierce that idea. We, we managed to get to the core of these characters in, in a really deft and rather beautiful way. That is not true of Dali. That is, that is I think, for me, a wasted opportunity. Yeah, good. Um, what a coincidence, says Frau Castorp, that the Spaniards are caricatures. Right. And I think... There is a language barrier in this film. 
And the more I watch it, the more I'm curious about the way in which we navigate language. We are perfectly content to have French characters speaking English. We are perfectly content from time to time to have Spanish characters speaking English. But you're right. I think that in the absence of a, a um, an absolutely clear path of communication, and in the absence of, of Gil's ability to talk directly to, uh, to, to Dali, it is easier, I think, to, to render that character a caricature. I think it is easier to render him somewhat less impressive. And as for Castorp is calling out, both Picasso and Dali are Catalan. And that is unfortunate. It is unfortunate that the two characters who suffer most from this thin and sketchy portrayal within the course of the movie do share this, this commonality that is unfortunately suggestive, I suppose. But also I think that there are that there are real narrative reasons why those characters in particular are going to be rendered in these these rather slight and brittle ways. But yes, very, very disappointing. Yes. Yeah. Good. Excellent. Okay. Uh let me see. I'm missing things. The YouTube chat today is is taking its own sweet time to update. I don't know if you guys are uh are seeing this this catch up more swiftly and more uh more efficiently, but it is, it is giving me some trouble today, yes. So let's talk then about, um, really about the heart of the film, the philosophical heart of the film. We spent so much time with Gil jumping back and forth between the present and the 1920s. And then he meets Adriana, who is, who is delightful, who is, is, is shocking and beautiful and provocative and engaging and I mean, we've got to observe it. We've got to note that this is true. And I know that I'm talking to a bunch of people who, who you know, not in part, but, but uh, not entirely, but at least in part, self-identify as writers, as I myself self-identify as a writer. It is no coincidence that he falls madly in love with her because she falls in love with his book. That is, I've known some writers, you guys. Um, <laughs> but this immediate connection that they have is enormously powerful. And the entire narrative takes a turn when she starts talking about La Belle Epoque, when she's talking about Paris in the 1890s, this, this generation previous, where under that looming storm cloud of the 20th century, under that, that threat and that fear, there is a, a, a desperate lust for life. There is a passion for experience, which exceeds, by contrast, the somewhat more encultured approach taken by those in the 1920s. A, a, a lifestyle that seems wild and hedonistic to our modern eyes looks to Adriana as, as entirely passé. She is moved by, by the, the almost gothic darkness of La Belle Epoque. The, the, the gothic darkness illuminated by, by beauty and by passion and by experience. These are very, very powerful ideas, and there is a contrast there that I find completely understandable, quite frankly. If I had a choice... You know, I might be drawn to the Belle Epoque too. I mean, I might be thinking more about that. Yes. Good. Um, so she immediately presents this idea that the golden age is not about a time and place. And as I said, Paris in the 1920s is not a time and not a place. It is not, it, it's not either temporal or geographical in, in quite the same way as the world around us tends to be. It is an idea. It is a story. It is a myth. It is disconnected from us by the veil of storytelling. It is a fantasy place. It might as well be the Shire for all that it actually, for all that it actually means. And that's not to say that it means nothing. Fictional places are incredibly powerful. I'm the last person in the world to say otherwise. So, but, but it's not quite 
it's not quite the sense that that it is a real place. It is a, a vision of something that has now passed. And as Adriana introduces the idea of La Belle Epoque, and we start moving through the story and understanding, well, wait, it isn't about the story. It isn't about the myth. It isn't about the place. It isn't about the, the city on the hill. What it is about is dissatisfaction. It is about imagining a simpler time. It is about imagining a world in which we were not beset by telephone calls. We were not beset by internet connectivity problems. We were not beset by paying bills and all of the, the minor and mundane hassles of, of modern life. As Adriana articulates, though, those minor hassles of modern life, though they themselves have changed, have always been a vexation for people. The modern world is more complicated, has always been more complicated than the past. And the desire for simplicity, the desire for beauty and for ease is a completely natural one, I think. No one looks back at a period in history and thinks, wow, things were super complicated then. That's when I wanted to live. It, it would be difficult to do so because I do think that the arc of human history has brought us from a, a simpler existence into a more complex one, into a more saturated one, saturated not just by, by, by joy and sensual experiences I was discussing earlier, but saturated with information, saturated with interaction that we are, I mean, particularly for us, more connected now than we have ever been. So that desire to retreat into the past and to find oneself in a simpler world is, I think, an entirely natural one. But the quest for self-identification, the quest for for self-understanding cannot rely upon the simplification of either oneself or the outside world. We can't seek to understand ourselves by making the world smaller. We can't seek to understand ourselves by making ourselves smaller understanding, true, holistic, empowering understanding comes from the recognition that the world is an anarchic and chaotic and willful place. And we are anarchic and chaotic and willful, that we are as complex as the world around us, that in that integration, we actually do find peace. We actually do, as Gil does at the end of the movie, having moved through and resolved his personal connections with the world around him, he manages to find a new kind of peace. He manages to find a new life and a new positivity within that frame. It's it's really rather beautiful, though, I guess, again, I, I said right at the beginning that I didn't actually have that many narrative complaints about the story, and I guess I'm picking up a few as I move through, a few little narrative quirks, a few little narrative uh, details that I find somewhat curious, I suppose. Having... Hmm. Having Gil confront Inez about her infidelity gives him an out that leaves him completely untainted by guilt or shame or or even accusation. He discovers that his fiance had an affair. He breaks it off. He's the good guy. So he's perfectly good to then cross the bridge at the end of the movie to run into the girl, the, the girl who discussed Cole Porter with him and to begin something new, to go walking in the rain, in fact, because he is free of any taint of guilt regarding Inez. And I wonder if that's a little trite. I wonder if that's a little simple. I wonder if it would have been more interesting to have him break off his engagement, not because she had slept with Paul. That's that's an excuse. It would perhaps have been more substantive to have him break off this engagement simply because it isn't working, to turn instead of external validation, to turn to internal authenticity. I think that could have been a more powerful narrative choice, but 
I will need to think about that more because that is literally just something that has occurred to me um, that has occurred to me right now. Um, so of course, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, Gil then takes Adriana um, in, in a horse-drawn carriage uh, back to La Belle Epoque. He takes her back to her own personal golden age. And that begins the unraveling of the magical realist conceit that these places are real and vibrant and exist at all. Instead, Gil is forced to come to terms with this idea that the present is impermanent, but the past is forever gone. That that trying to disconnect yourself from the present is only ever going to cause you harm and hurt, is only ever going to leave you... This is crucial, I guess, that I get the words right here. That trying to disconnect yourself from your present is only ever going to leave you incomplete. It is only ever going to separate you from those around you. One of the reasons I think that it would have been more interesting to have him deliberately break up with Inez for no other reason than their essential incompatibility would be that it spoke to this idea that, that the present is about community and about family and about connection and about the relationships that we have. Instead, he breaks up with Adriana because she can't make the same decision, can't, can't go on the same journey that he has gone on. And that's fascinating and sad and, and uh, tragic, I think. Genuinely, genuinely tragic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and YouTube has just updated with a million things. Here we go. Let me try and catch up here. Um, oh, actually, not so much. Not so much. Um, Elizabeth says, yes, is that, is that Woody Allen Mary suing himself? Maybe that's a shame. Okay, here are the defenses uh, for, the, for the infidelity loophole right at the end of the story. Firstly, it is absolutely established throughout the rest of the movie. It is clear to us long before it is clear to Gail that this is exactly what is happening. Um, Inez's fascination with Paul and his outright seduction of her, his outright manipulation of her, are evident from their, their first encounter. Um, so, so it's not, you know, a deus ex machina ending. There is no sudden loophole that resolves our, our core conflict in a way that leaves the hero untouched or unblemished. It is absolutely a part of the fundamental narrative, as is Gill's obliviousness, his inability to... Well, okay, here's, here's the question. Does Gill know about Inez and Paul? Or does Gil just not care about Inez and Paul? I think there are arguments on both sides, but certainly the conversation with Gertrude Stein right at the end suggests that he genuinely doesn't know, that he, that he genuinely doesn't see these people that are around him, that he loves Inez, so that must be the foundation of their relationship. He hates Paul, so that must be true of her too, that these two things are incompatible because he doesn't generally seed the people around him their own rich internal life, or at least hasn't previously. By this point, he absolutely has. This is one of the ways in which he matures as an individual and becomes more integrated himself, is that he begins to see the people around him as real people, not simply as caricatures or as stand-ins or as props. These people are not incidental to him anymore. They are real to him. That's an important transition. So I don't think it's cheap I don't think it's undeserved. I don't think it's technically speaking a narrative flaw. I do think it's less ambitious and I do think it's less interesting, less narratively and less dramatically interesting than the alternative. I, I, it's not the best part of, of the script. And certainly, once again, we're forced to contend with the notion that, that Woody Allen's essential protagonism 
is, is a presence in the film, is a weight in the film. So yes, I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Oh, Elizabeth is clarifying. I, I may have misspoke here. Yes, Gil doesn't break up with Adriana. She leaves him. He doesn't follow. Yes, but he, by that point, um, I would argue, <clears throat> prior to that, immediately prior to her leaving, which is, you're absolutely right, how that unfolds, he has already come to the point of understanding. He has already kind of made his peace with his disassociation from himself and from from his experience. So, yes, I think I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Good. Good. Okay. Um, believe it or not, I've run for an hour talking about uh, Midnight in Paris. I'm rather surprised by that. Um, I guess I'll, I'll wrap up by saying that though the ending of the movie is imperfect, though the ending of the movie is a little heavy-handed, I, I'm not a huge fan of Owen Wilson's monologue in which he completely explores explicitly and textually every thematic idea that has been present in the story up to this point. You know what? I'm smart and I've been paying attention. I could have come with you on this journey without, you know, a point-by-point, step-by-step guide to understanding the allure of golden ages and the importance of the present and all of these things. I do find that a little heavy-handed and I'm not crazy about Inez's infidelity. Now that I think about it, in fact, it would have been fantastic if she hadn't cheated on him and that had still been the excuse that he used to to break up their relationship. There are so many complex things that you can do in that relationship right at the end of the movie. I would have loved it. I would have loved it. Um, that said, with those two caveats in mind, I am genuinely moved by this film. It isn't just beautiful to look at, though it certainly is, and it isn't just thoughtful and and graceful and genuinely funny. I, I can't believe, in fact, that I haven't specifically called out Alison Pill as uh, Zelda Fitzgerald. Maybe my favorite performance? No, it's still Hemingway. But Alison Pill as Zelda Fitzgerald is also fantastic. I mean, the, the, her two short scenes, I guess, are just the greatest things. I adore her completely. Um, it is an engaging and diverting film to watch, populated, I think, by some genuinely great performances. Ultimately, for me, it really does come back to the moral. There is something, hmm, there is a, a, a fable quality to Midnight in Paris. There is a, a parable quality to Midnight in Paris, which I actually really rather like. I do think it's a little heavy-handed, but the conclusion that we ourselves can never be whole until we are integrated with the world around us, whatever that means to us, is vital, is vital. Because it isn't just about Gill finding the golden age of, of Paris in the 1920s. It's about him actually finding Paris. It's about him finding this Paris, his Paris, the Paris to which he can actually be meaningfully, con- uh, meaningfully connected. I think that um, that sense of his integration is very powerful at the end of the film. And we, of course, reward our protagonist for making progress with a pretty girl. Not completely crazy about that either, though, again, I think it's defensible because they had had this prior connection over Cole Porter, because they had genuinely bonded earlier in the film. So narratively speaking, it's also not completely flawed, but there is a there is a connotative quality to rewarding the protagonist with a pretty young French girl at the end of the movie that I'm not crazy about. I think it would have been for me just as satisfying to have Gil walk alone in the rain in Paris. That would have been perhaps a more complete ending for, for the arc of this particular protagonist. But, hey, we make concessions to, to narrative expectation all the time and setting him up with the pretty French girl at the end. Okay, not great. Admittedly, not great, but also somewhat understandable, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. 
Good. Good, 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 good. Rachel says, it's just the too long didn't read of the movie. Yes. It really is. No, it really is. And there are ways of doing that, which are... Huh. There are ways of doing... This is talking about the, the Owen Wilson exposition scene. There are ways of approaching those exposition scenes, which I'm the first to admit are sometimes necessary. Sometimes you just have to have your character monologue. Sometimes you do. There are ways of approaching those scenes, those hell scenes, which can speak to character, can subvert, invert, challenge the audience's expectation, which can be playful, can be dramatic in and of themselves. There are ways of doing that which are more than, than just that expository need. There is nothing here in that moment which is more than the expository need. He just really needs to talk about the theme of the movie, you guys. He just really needs to, yeah. Oh, Kim says, walking down a street in the rain with different ages of taxis passing him by. Kim, I am crazy about you. That is an excellent, excellent thought. I would have loved that very much. Yes. Uh, and Elizabeth says, interesting alternative ending. Maybe we see another pretty girl walking in the rain. They don't see each other. That would be very satisfying. Oh, that's beautiful. Yes, yes. Or even several Parisians, she adds, walking in the rain unhurried. Yes. And of course, the rain is so powerfully symbolic and mythically symbolic. The rain as a, as a force of, of restoration. The, the rain cleanses and nurtures and feeds. You know, the, the rain is vital and is elemental and is primal in a really powerful and important way. And to have him be integrated and then walking in the rain works beautifully for me at, at a very, very deep fundamental mythic level. Yes. Yes, and, and seeing that ripple out through the city. I, I, yeah, I would love some kind of combination of all of these. Can we do all of these? We can have some kind of, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll draw the camera out a long way very slowly from Owen Wilson as we see him walking. And perhaps we see the, the Cole Porter girl walking with him in the rain. Perhaps they don't see each other. Perhaps they smile. Perhaps, they, perhaps that's, that's the moment that we pull away from him is, is a moment of brief interaction between the two of them. Then we have other Parisians just strolling in the rain on the bridge. It's perfect. And then the car or many cars or whatever. That's, that's beautiful. Yes. So, so beautiful. All right, guys, I think that is going to do it. I think that I have said actually a fraction, a fraction of what I have to say about Midnight in Paris. I may return to this in the future. Um, it is, Woody Allen is obviously not an unproblematic figure. Midnight in Paris, despite that, mindful of that, is I think a genuinely lovely movie. It is genuinely thoughtful, has a genuinely good heart and is throughout beautiful to look at. I can't believe I've reached this point without mentioning all of the golden light because while we are referencing the golden age of the 1920s, there is a subtle visual cue as you're moving through the story that, that foreshadows Gill's eventual revelation, which is that Paris in the present is oftentimes suffused with golden light. And we almost never do that. In, the, in fact, I, I, I always hesitate when I'm making these bold declarative statements, and I'm sure that I might be wrong, but to my recollection, we never do that in the past. I can't think of an incidence of that, that yellow golden light in the past. In the present, we get it all the time, most notably in Gil and Inez's bedroom. There is this, this uh, it is almost like a candlelight glow. It is almost, it is almost uh, a, a luminosity of, of every object in the room. It is stunning, stunning to look at. And of course, Paris looks spectacular. Kind of hard to point a camera at Paris and not have it look spectacular, you guys. Yes. Elizabeth says, send us your scripts, Hollywood. We'll fix them. Yeah, we will. Yeah, we will. Good. 
Let's wrap it up here then. Guys, thank you so much for joining me for this one-shot discussion. All of these one-shot discussions, last week I talked about the 1988 fantasy movie Willow and the 2010 cult classic Scott Pilgrim versus the world. All of these podcasts, all of the audio versions of these will be available in a podcast feed very soon. So stay tuned for that. And hey, if you don't have plans for the rest of the day, go pick up a copy of American Gods, go read the first two chapters, and then come back to YouTube to hang out with me at 9 p.m. Eastern this evening. I'm going to talk about the first two chapters of American Gods as part of the Storms on the Way podcast series dedicated to that novel and to the upcoming Stars TV adaptation, which I cannot wait to talk about. I hope that you guys will be able to join me for that. That's 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, right here on Point North Media's YouTube page. Stay tuned to Twitter and all the usual places for the links or subscribe to the channel. I think if you subscribe to the channel, you'll get a notification or you can set a notification that will let you know when I go live with a new video. Thank you all so much for watching. Thank you all so much for joining me. And if you have suggestions for future one-shot lectures, please get in touch and let me know. I will talk to you all again very soon. Until then, take care.